Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Frederick Hudson, who talks to him about his four-year prison sentence and how he turned that into a venture-funded technology startup. Frederick, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So I came across your story by way of Fast Company, and I was just so taken aback by it. And I thought, this is such a, a fascinating story. We need to tell this on the show. So uh, on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your background, your story, your journey, and how that has led you to what you're up to in the world today? Yeah, so um, I was actually, um, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, raised down south in Florida, um, did a small time, um, about two years in the Air Force. And, you know, I've always been interested in business, always been interested in entrepreneurship, um, even, you know, in high school, you know, would, you know, do lawn services or car washes and things like that. And even while, you know, when I was 19, started my first business, which was a window tinting shop for um, vehicles, re- uh, commercial and residential buildings. Um, started it with about $500 for my tax return that year and built it up to about 130,000 sales over the next six months. So that was my first time of starting something from, you know, very small, just an idea, finding a good location and going through those motions. And I learned a lot. So for me, I didn't have any formal training in entrepreneurship or business or anything like that. It's just something that I just kind of learned on the fly from, you know, trying and, and trying stuff and failing and trying again. Um, so that's always been my strength, um, is that I can see opportunity in everything I look at, but that's also my weakness. And part of that weakness was when I saw people that I grew up with and people that were close to me, um, struggling in the business that they were in, which was distribution of marijuana. And I saw, you know, Hey, you know, I can help you guys make this very efficient. Um, it got so efficient that about five years later, when I started that, it got the federal government's attention and I was indicted when I was 23 years old. Hmm. So, um, so it, it, that was, you know, a, a very life changing um, event for me because it took me from, you know, I had never been in trouble before. I had, you know, I had no prior criminal record or anything like that. But it just immersed me into the world that I knew nothing about. And, you know, when I started, you know, looking around, I noticed that, you know, this is huge population of people that no one's paying attention to. And most people don't understand. And some of the problems are very simple problems. Um, of just communication and things like that. And, you know, I knew that there was an opportunity there to make that better. And that's, you know, how Pigeonly started. Hmm. You know, I, I want to go back to the the very beginning of this. And I want to ask a, a little bit about, you know, what your childhood was like, you know, what that whole experience was like growing up that could lead you to making this kind of a decision 
right. uh, to actually get involved in an opportunity that you knew could possibly get you into trouble. Yeah, I mean, so growing up, you know, I was always the people, you know, I grew up in a low income uh, neighborhood and, you know, as a single mother and what what I mean, we was definitely when I say we my, my siblings and I, we was raised knowing right from wrong. We was raised knowing, you know, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Like there was no there was no question about that. But for me, it was just uh, at the time, the way my brain was processing everything that the. The end justified the means. So that's really you know, the approach that I took where I went to accomplish a goal. When I started first selling drugs, the, what I was trying to accomplish was there was a gas station I had my eye on. And, you know, the sales price was I think it was like two point two million. And I had never owned a business before. This is even before I did the tent shop. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was able to get SBA financing lined up. I was able to get the owner to carry back a portion of it. And I was able to get it down to where I only had to come up with fifty thousand dollars out of the two million. Now, this is over four or five months, you know, just, you know, hitting my head against the wall and figuring out how business financing worked and loans and all that. And I probably I made a spreadsheet of all the banks that were in the West Coast area, California, Las Vegas, and called each one of them until, you know, I was able to learn. And then every time I got turned down, um, I would ask the banker, you know, why are you turning me down? And then every time I got every time I was turned down, I learned something new of how to create a better package so that I had a better chance at the next bank. Mm -hmm. So with going through that process, I ended up getting it down to where I only needed fifty thousand dollars in cash. And my thinking was, you know, everybody's always going to be gas. I'll be instant millionaire if I have a gas station. You know, I know a lot better now. But then at 18 years old, Mm -hmm. I thought that that would have been a sure way to riches. So um, so. When when I saw this opportunity, I saw it as a way, it was an easy way and a way that I can make up the difference, make up a fifty thousand cash doing something else, and and to be able to go back and get the gas station that I wanted to start, the career and business that I wanted to start. So that's how it started. What happens though is that as you know, you're young and that money comes in so fast and things are moving so fast, and then before you know it, you forget why you even got into it in the first place, and you forget why you even started it and before you know it, you're knee deep in something that you really know you shouldn't be in but now you've created this lifestyle that you have to support and so it's just a really vicious cycle of you know the further you stay in it the more your lifestyle changes and then the more you need to stay in it to support the lifestyle that you just created so <laughs> it just continues to go on and then before you know it you look up and five years has passed and you're still doing the same thing mm-hmm. you know a lot of questions come for me from that uh you know, to me, this is a story of misguided ambition. I, I don't know if you'd agree right. with that. But I think that, you know, it, we live in a world where everybody is super type A and driven. And I'm really interested in, in how we look at our ambition uh, and really kind of take a closer look to make sure it's not so misguided because it seems like, you know, your intentions were good, but you kind of lost your way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the th- one of the greatest lessons I learned and one of the things I live by now is just just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Uh-huh. And that was the one thing. That's the one question that I never asked myself in the past. So if Frederick could do something, Frederick would absolutely do it. And if he saw an opportunity, he would take it. And, and now, you know, even now, um, it, and it's important in business to be disciplined now. And I see that because we're approached with opportunities left and right. Hey, you guys can also do this. You can also do that. But if you want to build a successful business, you really have to stay true to your core. You have to be focused on your core. And just because you can do all these things doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. So back then, had I asked myself that question, yeah, just because I could make quick money um, distributing marijuana, then it, it, it didn't mean that I should have done that. And I should have looked for other ways. Now, 
from my perspective at the time, being a young African-American male, it was different going through banks and trying to get financing for a business that you don't have any prior prior um, uh, history in or you don't have any, any, any experience in. So it's very, those things are very difficult. So even though that was the case, you know, for me, it was even more reason, well, I'm going to go do it my way and then come back. So what, what, it's definitely misguided ambition. And, and for the, that's the most case of most of the guys that, you know, I spent a lot of time with while I was in prison. Like these are all, most of the people that are in prison, they're not murderers and killers and people that we're afraid of. They're people that we're mad at and that's why they're in prison. And they're, they're people that most of what they've done is financially driven. It was a financially driven thing because they took what they saw as opportunity to create the lifestyle that they felt that they wanted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's a, bigger it's a bigger issue when you have you know people living in a neighborhood where the the only um the only thriving economy is the drug economy and not and not um, small businesses hiring or or the they may not know that these are doors that i can knock on most people don't even know that hey i can build my own business i can do something technology nobody around me in my neighborhood did anything in technology no i there was no computer developers in my neighborhood. There was nobody in my family or classmates that I could have tapped and said, hey, you know, I'm trying to build this website. Let's get together. But that's different if had I went to Harvard or had I went mm-hmm. to Stanford. So those are part of some of the issues that are broader issues. But nonetheless, you know, you most of the you really just have to knock on the door and try anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And that's how we was able to get to where we are now. So there's two things you said there. You know, you talked about sort of not losing this core uh, of why you're doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on that note, I, you know, I want to ask, sometimes I think that we don't even know what the core is because we've never actually sat down to explore it. It's not something you do in school. It's not something you do in college. It's not even something you do in graduate school. I can tell you through personal experiences, none of those things uh, ever happened to me. I don't ever remember sitting down to say, hey, you know, what is the core? Like, you know, what is, what is it that I believe? What do I value? And I'm really curious, you know, what is a process of, of, of self-discovery for, ha, has it looked like for you? And, and, you know, if you were to guide somebody on that process now, uh, what would yeah, that look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 a, that's a great question. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend the path that I took. But, <laughs> did it, but, but for me, what it was was sitting in the cell for 23 hours a day right. and being alone with your thoughts and being in a position where you're in an environment where there's no distraction. You're in an environment where you have to be 100% honest with who you are. You have to be 100% honest of what you've done. You have to be 100% honest of what you have accomplished or have not accomplished mistakes and successes. You have to be honest with all those things. You really have to take a, a personal assessment of yourself. And it was during that time taking a personal assessment of myself. That's why I started to learn what I was actually good at. So then when I started thinking, okay, well, what am I actually good at? You know, you can say, okay, I'm good at business, but it wasn't that I was good at business. Like my skill and talent wasn't about business. My skill and talent was troubleshooting. So it didn't matter whether I was troubleshooting a problem with moving drugs from point A to point B. It didn't matter if I was troubleshooting a problem to make it easier for inmates to stay connected. Or it didn't matter if I was troubleshooting a problem of it's 90 degrees in Las Vegas and people are burning their arms because they don't have window tents on their cars. And it was just business was the vehicle in which I can express what my talent was, which was troubleshooting. Mm-hmm. So what I've learned was that most people, the gifts that they have um, and the things that is their core is things that they've been doing all your life. So what's your core is something that you've probably been doing since you was a uh, kid or a toddler that your parents could even tell you, hey, you was always you had a knack for this. You always was this type of thing. I was always that guy. Um, even when I was a kid that was always trying to solve a problem or trying to troubleshoot something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do for a living now. So you can 
you can package this in many different ways. I could have did this in a job. I'd have to do this in my own business. I could have, you know, trouble. I did it for the Air Force. I mean, I was an electrician on the F-16 in the Air Force, and my day every day was fixing the jet when it was broke. So you can do this. You can exercise that same gift. And once you know what that is, once I identified that, I said, okay, now things are starting to make sense, and I understood why I made the decisions that I made. I understood why I always gravitated towards certain situations. I understood why people always came to me with certain things, and they would come to other people for different things because – I was just was good at solving a problem or brainstorming or figuring out a solution to something. That was just what I, what my talent was. Mm-hmm. So once I saw that, I said, okay, well, now I know what my purpose is on this earth, that I'm here because I have a gift of solving problems. Now I just need to decide what problems do I want to solve. So what better problems to solve than something that I experienced personally and I knew that I can you know, make an impact for people that I went through the experience personally. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it started. And I started learning and, and understanding myself so clearly that you know i knew exactly what i was doing and then i knew i was doing the right thing at the right time with the right people for the right reasons Mm -hmm. and and that's really you know how i um discovered what my core was how do you get that without spending 23 hours (laughs) i think i think the way to do it um without i think it's really just starts with self-assessment i think that a lot of times we look externally for you know, what our purpose is and what we should do. We look in external sources. And I really think it's, you've been already, you've already been doing it all your life. Like you've already been that thing. And it's, it's not always this huge grand thing. It doesn't have to be that, you know, I have a gift for, for playing the piano or I have a gift for playing a violin. It doesn't have to be that. You could simply have a gift for being a very well strategic planner. And now you can apply that in your own business. You can apply that for an organization that you might work for. You can apply that in family situations. You can apply that in personal relationships. So that might be what it is. And once you understand that, then you look at opportunities for you to be able to apply what your gift is, what your strength is in, 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 in the world around you. And then that's how you start making an impact. And then you'll discover it'll find you. Like the opportunities will come to you. And what, that's one of the things I've learned is that once you get in a place where you're, you know what, what your purpose is and you know what you should do, then opportunities are always there. And really the difference between people who um, don't see opportunity and people who do is that the people who do see opportunity are people who are in position to take advantage of it. And a lot of times when I look in the past, the opportunities that, that, that when I felt like there was no opportunities, I just was never in a position to take advantage of them. I was never in a position to do anything with them. And that's really where the preparation of, you know, immerse yourself in, in things that cause you to reflect and think. Immerse yourself in, if you're interested in business, read. I mean, I read Inc. Magazine. I read Wall Street Journal. I read all those publications, even though I didn't know what business I was going to start. I just immersed myself into it. Um, and, you know, over time, it, it just finds you. I mean, it just, it's really always there. I guess my point is you don't have to look for it. It's already there. You know, that's interesting. And I, I do want to talk about this ability that you seem to have to, to recognize opportunity, but I want to ask you one other thing. And, and, you know, I thought it was fascinating that you said was that you've had a vehicle to express your talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, you know, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari here very recently, and he was one of the first people to ever hire Steve Jobs. And he said, you know, there are thousands of Steve Jobs in every organization, but what Steve had really, especially on his return to Apple, was a vehicle to express his talents. Right. And that to me is one of those things that seems disconnected from a lot of people's talents. And I'm really interested in, in how you go about finding the vehicle. Yeah. Um, I, for me, the, it was identifying, it started with, okay, I know I, once I realized, okay, yeah, this is, it's for me, I'm a troubleshooter. I'm a problem solver. That's what I am. Okay, cool. Once I knew that it was now I can choose there's there's a million problems in society and the world and around us that you can choose to solve. 
But for me, it was what can I make the most impactful and what can I be so committed to that I'm going to want to stick with this, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether things are going well, whether things are going south, whether I'm happy, whether I'm sad. What is something I can really get 100 percent behind? And you really just have to be honest with yourself and say, well, am I doing this just for the money? Am I doing this just because um, I'm doing this for the impact? Am I doing this for a mixture of both? And there's nothing wrong with doing something for the money. It's, you know, it's really just your personal decision. But the problem when you do something just for the money, when the money's not there, you lose that motivation. Hmm. So that's that's really the downside of it. So, I mean, the 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 allure or the 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 idea of the money is great to get you going, but it's definitely not going to keep you going. <laughs> so you, you really have to be able to find something and and be able to choose the vehicle that you know that you're going to be passionate about. And that's why entrepreneurs are so passionate about what they're working on is like their babies, like their child. Um, and once you apply, you know, your core to something that, you know, you can be passionate about, whether it's good or bad, whether it's going well or going south, then, you know, that's really when you shine. And that's really when people recognize your gifts and talents because you're really going to thrive in that thing. Mm, I love that. So let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we've, we've talked about throughout this is that you have this ability to recognize opportunity. And I've asked a few people this question do you think that the ability to recognize opportunity is something that is just inherent into who you are as a person or do you think that's something that we can cultivate and develop definitely 100% cultivate 100% (laughs) so yeah I mean I I talk I talk to my friends and my peers about this a lot and I don't think I'm special in the event where I see the the glasses half full I don't think that's nothing unique I think I trained myself to look for the opportunity in everything I look at. And, and it's really, I, I do that just because if I don't, I'll be fucking depressed all day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you have to, you have to, you have to train yourself to, regardless of what's happening, even every day in business, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a constant of ebbs and flows. It's constant valley, mountain, valley, mountain, valley, mountain. So you, if you don't train yourself to be able to see the bright side or the, the silver lining and just about everything that's happening, then you won't you won't be the kind of person anybody else wants to be around, and you won't be the kind of person that your organization is going to follow as the leader. Um, because if they can't, if you if you can't believe it, and even if you don't believe it, act like you believe it, then nobody else can either. So it's it's really training yourself to really. And what I find is that when you situations are really, I don't see situations as good or bad at this point. So I've gotten to the point where they're kind of just. They're just kind of static and I can look at something and there's bad sides to it, but there's also good sides. There's things that I can't control. There's things that I can't control. And really what I focus on is what do I have control over in the situation and everything I don't have control over, I completely ignore because I don't put any energy in the things that I can't control. So, and, and what I've noticed is what that appears to on the outside, people just think I'm very lucky, mm-hmm. but it's not that I'm lucky. It's just that I really put all my energy into things that I have control over as opposed to stressing or worrying about things that are completely out of my control. So I recognize, to sum it up, I recognize what I do have control over and focus my energy on that. And that's usually is the good part of whatever situation I'm in. So let me ask you this. How do you train that? How do you train that uh, as an individual? And how can we do that in small doses on a day-to-day basis in our lives? I think as situations happen, I really think, I, I really believe that the way the... For, for me, there's always that tape that's going on in my head. And, you know, sometimes that that voice and this voice is usually always negative. Like, this is not going to work. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And this tape just goes on and on and on and on. And I consciously try to turn that tape off. 
I constantly try to control my thoughts and I constantly try to correct myself when um, when negative thoughts about a situation start surfacing as they will, which is natural for that to happen. I've noticed that the when I dwell on those things, those things actually come into fruition. So I don't, don't want to get too far. People start thinking, OK, well, this is, might be too hard to grasp. But I've actually noticed that the way the way my thoughts and my mind produces actual how things happen around me. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if that's maybe the way I react to situations starts from the way I thought. I mean, I can't I can't tell you why this is, but I do notice that, you no, know, the more positive I am, the more positive circumstances are around me. And the more negative I am, the more negative things are around me. So for me, I just try to consciously it's just a conscious effort to be positive as a conscious effort, even when I'm having conversations to have positive conversations, it's a constant effort to avoid negative people. It's a conscious effort to put people around me that are also positive. So all those things are conscious efforts that I do that actually create this environment where you can be creative and collaborative and positive. And then from the outside looking in, it's just like, wow, those guys are just, you know, think good things just happen to them when it's not really that. Mm-hmm. It's just that we're actually putting conscious effort in, 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 building uh, a surrounding where we can be focused and we can execute and we can do things because we're, we're trying to remove as much negativity out of a situation as possible. You know, it's interesting. As I listen to you say that, I can't help but think back to a conversation I had with a, a guy named Dave Logan who wrote a book called The Three Laws of Performance, one of our former guests here on the show. And for those of you guys who are listening, definitely worth checking out if you haven't heard it. But, you know, in The Three Laws of Performance, they talk about how language is inseparable from reality and that voice in our head actually creates a picture. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, as you said, you know, you can kind of take the same situation. You can tell two facts about it, both equally true, and one will produce right. a very different experience uh, for right. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, I, 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 I see it every day. And for us, it's I mean, I just really and it, actually I learned this while I was in prison. So in prison, you're in a very small you're in this closed community with, uh, you know, you might be, you know, let's say 3,000 people. And these 3,000 people, you live, eat, sleep, everything with these 3,000 folks. Like, you're doing everything with them all the time. And what happens is you have no choice on who you're around. I don't have the, I don't have the choice if I'm around somebody who's negative. I don't have a choice if I'm around somebody who's positive. So what you learn, what I learned was how important it was to protect my environment. When I say my environment, it was just my circle. Mm-hmm. And whether that just be me by myself or other people around me, I always had to try to always maintain a positive outlook on what I was doing, where I was going, and removing any type of um, person that could have been negative. And what I've noticed is that it takes energy. When you have a negative person around you, you feel drained. You feel tired and it really takes conscious effort to remove that and to kind of get back to, to your normal self. And so that's how I started learning how how powerful it was to really control your environment when you want to accomplish something, when you're trying to build something mm-hmm. and to have the people around you that can support that. Well, you know, I, I love that you brought up environment because that really was going to be my next question. And there's some interesting things about environment that I, I'd really like to spend some time talking with you about as well. But, you know, you mentioned growing up, uh, you know, basically in a low income family. I mean, you came from, you know, a background that, you know, for most people would say is an environment that generally wouldn't lead to a positive outcome. Right. One of the things that I was always interested in me about environments is how do we not become a byproduct of our environment? Because I see that happen to so many people. And then I see other people who, in spite of their environment, end up on a very different track. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, 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 the people that I know that, um, that despite their environment um, ended up on a different track are the people who were conscious 
you know, at a, they, they became conscious. And most, most people, you know, for example, in neighborhoods that I come from, they're just sleep. They're alive, they're alive and they're awake, but they're asleep at the same time. So it's just going through the motions. And most of that comes from where I don't even realize that I have this, these options. So in my mind, my mind is very closed off and I don't even know that this is an option. I don't even know that I can build a company that does this. I don't even know that for me, all I know is that I have to um, get a job or, um, or, you know, sell drugs or these are, these are my options. And I think that really just comes from people not realizing or not opening mind or just being what I call sleep mm-hmm. and, and not seeing that, okay, these are things that you can do. And I think part of it is because I don't see other people that look like me that are doing these things. So I assume that's not for me. And so the more people that, that awake and see and start doing things and the more people that say, okay, well, I see you guys. So it's, it's no, it's no, it's no coincidence that, you know, young, the average young African-American male in a low income neighborhood, you know, his opportunities, he's going to see it as either sports or the music industry. It's, I mean, it's no coincidence because the people that he sees as successful that look like him, that's where they are. They're not doctors. They're not lawyers. They're not astronauts they're not the ceos of technology companies that's that's not who he sees so the people he sees they look completely different than him and that's true for other demographics that's true for other people and and other races when you if you don't see yourself in those areas it's really hard to know that this is something that's for you so i think that the more of us that you know start knocking on doors that traditionally we may not be in then it, all it does is now wakes other people up and say, okay, that's something I can knock on too. Or this idea that's been rolling in my head that, you know, I didn't think that I can do. Now I, I see that, you know, he did it, so I can too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to to start changing, you know, communities and for communities to see other people in other lights of doing other things. You know, it's interesting because as you're saying that, I think about, you know, the community I grew up in and seeing doctors really being Indian as sort right. of that. That's right. the example of success. <laughs> right, exactly, you know, doctors exactly. and engineers. It's like, these right. are the, this is what's possible. These are the people that are successful. Right. Exactly. The same, same principles. Same yeah, principle. exactly. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, you know what? I, I, you know, I want to spend some time, uh, actually spend the rest of our time talking about your time in prison, but I have one other question before mm-hmm. this period, uh, you know, about the Air Force and mm-hmm. how your time in the Air Force really has sort of influenced and shaped your life, your worldview, and, and what that's brought uh, into you as a person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the military was great for me. Um, so the the person that planted the seed in my mind for the military was my uncle. And at the time, the uncle was my was probably um, the most successful person in the family. And, you know, because he was the one that he went to school. Um, he went to the military. Then when he went to the military, you know, he went all the way up in the ranks. And, you know, he was the guy that was successful. He was the guy in the family when when somebody needed something, that's who they went to. So for me growing up and seeing that, it's like, okay, yeah, that's if I want to be successful. Military is a great. I, that's a great thing for me to do because my uncle did it. I can do it, too. So that's how it started. So, you know, I went to the Air Force and, you know, I did well. One of the things that I learned in the Air Force was how to work with um, all different types of people. So the Air Force <laughs> and prison are very similar where you're around people, all different types of people from different backgrounds, different different um, races, different everything and different cultures. And you learn to work with these folks. You learn to get along with these folks and you build you, you, you start learning how to lead. And that's one of the things that I learned in Air Force is how to lead. I learned also the military is insanely efficient. They're insanely efficient in everything that they do. And that's that's kind of where I picked up, you know, stuff that we, you know, do in our company now is how to be efficient, how to create processes and systems so that regardless whether it's me doing it or a custom service rep that's doing it, the outcome is exactly the same. McDonald's is a good example of that. No matter what McDonald's you go through, the you're going to have the same amount of fries in your container. You're going to have your Big Mac's going to taste exactly the same. So those are the type of processes that I started seeing in the military where, you know, they have these folks and everyone had a very specific task and a role, but it was always efficient. It always, the outcome was always the same regardless whether I did this task or whether somebody else did this task. And 
So those are some of the things I learned. And then on top of that, it was discipline. You know, it was one of the things where regardless of, you know, the difference between living how you feel and living by you, what you know. And that's something that the military really drills in is that it doesn't matter how you feel about the situation. You have to live by, you know, so you may not feel like getting up at six o'clock in the morning and going for a run, but you know, you need to. So you're going to do it anyway, regardless of how you feel. So, you know, it was probably those three things that stood out to me, you know, working with people from all different um, backgrounds, learning how to be efficient and do things and always having a sense of urgency in what you're doing and then not living based on how you feel, living by what you know. Um, and, you know, that that's really stuck with me and helped me, you know, to work on the stuff and build the stuff that we're building on. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and uh, let's let's start talking about your time in prison. I mean, mm-hmm. you get to that moment of being indicted. Uh, what <laughs> goes through your head in a moment like that? I mean, it must, be, must really shake you to the core, I would think. Yes, absolutely. It, it, it's crazy. It's um, <laughs> it's it's so it's one of those things where you have no way to understand or be prepared until you're in the middle of it, and at that point, it's too late. <laughs> so it's like that. So. Like, I had no clue how the prison system worked. I had no clue what conspiracy even meant. So I'm I'm naive. I'm thinking that, okay, you have to, in order to go to jail for something or to get get arrested for something, you have to get caught with drugs in your hand. You have to get caught with some, doing something illegal. I had no concept of, you don't have to get caught doing anything. All we need is somebody else to say that you was involved, and that's enough. Mm-hmm. So it was a very um, awakening experience of how the criminal justice system works. And it's one of those things where, on a federal level, there's no expensive lawyer that's going to get you out of it. It's kind of like a cookie cutter type system where this is what the charge is. You know, we have a 98% conviction rate. You can take it to trial if you want to, but the chances of you winning is 2% and, or you can take this plea bargain. So it's really like a factory. It's very, it's very, it's very, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's not, it's not, it's not a game that you can play and win. I guess is what I'm saying. So, not knowing, but you don't know that when you're in the streets and, you know, you're doing reckless things, you're not thinking that you're thinking that, you know, oh, yeah, you know, this is the game. This would be a slap on the wrist. It's not a big deal. Um, but it's very different. So it's, it, you know, it's traumatizing on you. It's traumatizing on your family. And, you know, when you when they're reading off that indictment, they're talking about you. You're listening to the, the, the charges of reading off. You're like, who are they talking about? Like, <laughs> is that me that they're talking about? Like, I'm not like they, like you, you, you start believing the stuff they're saying. You think you're, that you're a monster. So it's 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 a very interesting thing to go through. Um, and it's a very awakening. It's a very awakening event. Um, I mean, going in prison, it's a it's an environment is the one environment on this earth where you have absolutely no control. You have no control over anything, no control over whether you eat, no control over when you sleep, no control of who you sleep next to. When you take a shower, you have no control of anything. And when you take someone who might be entrepreneurial, you take someone who is used to who wants to build something and create their own destiny. It's a huge it's a huge culture shock for, for you know, that type of personality. Mm-hmm. So. What is the process of integrating into something uh, like that to go from the environment that you were in to the environment mm-hmm. prison? I mean, what does that look like psychologically? I mean, and what misconceptions do we as people on the outside have about life on the inside? Yeah, one one is that you see on prison, like you don't walk in prison and go pick a fight with the biggest guy that you see there. Like that, <laughs> that's that's one. <laughs> that's one easy way. And so, I mean, institutions. Prison environment is very interesting. So one of the things that I noticed is that it's its own society. It's its own society with its own set of rules. 
and its own set of consequences and its own everything. So basically, inmates themselves run institutions. The staff that's there is really their job is to make sure you don't leave and make sure you don't kill each other. But the inmates run the institution. So what's happening is that it's a place where what you say and your word, that's it. So if you say that I'm going to um, do this or I'm going to uh you know, give you two dollars for this, then you better have two dollars. If the consequences isn't going to be a negative credit score rating, the consequences going to be much more severe. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you, you people learn to live by their word. People learn that respect is the number one, the number one most important thing there. And what happens when you have an environment like that? These people naturally start respecting each other, and these people naturally start. You know, somebody bumps you. Oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. That's what happens. Because if I don't say, excuse me, if I end up to bump into a white guy, now I have to deal with 800 white guys that are pissed off because I disrespected one white guy. And if the white guy bumped into a black guy, now he has to deal with 800 black guys that are pissed off that he bumped into that one black guy. So what happens is the white guy and the black guy, we, we, we respect each other. And at the same time, it's, it's, very, it's very segregated. It's, very, it's a very um, segregated, or for lack of a better term, racist environment. So... The Spanish community don't mix with the white community. The white community don't mix with the black community or the Spanish community. And everyone sits on separate tables. And that's that's how it is. Mm-hmm. So a lot of a lot of that is driven from from, you know, their strength in numbers. And a lot of that is driven from um, different cultures to stick together just for for the sake of and protection of that whole group. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what you end up seeing is what you end up, what's end up happening is that you just really, you know, especially when the higher levels, as you get down to the lower levels, like the camps. Um, it's very different. It's more of a, of a, of a, you know, more of a, like a, a college campus that you just don't leave like a dormitory type setup. Um, but you know, in the higher institutions where I started, you know, it's a very, especially on the West coast, it's a very, very, um, emotionally charged environment where you're always on your P's and Q's, but your people are always respectful. People are always, um, stinking by their word because at the end of the day you're in an environment where your word is all you have so if you say you're gonna do something you better do it if you and that's really how it operates that's the kind of ecosystem that, that it is hmm. well let's talk about this i mean too for, far too often i hear stories of the fact that this system doesn't actually rehabilitate anybody in fact most people who go there the first time end up coming back right. uh, we had another guy here uh named Andy Dixon, who talked about serving 27 years. And he said, you know, what's really disturbing is that people who are planning at the state level actually plan the number of prison beds that we have based on the kids of the people that are currently in prison. So effectively, they're planning for the worst. Right. And yet you built a business from behind bars and you've come out as a, as a startup CEO. So I I really want to talk about that process and, and, you know, your mindset during all of this that enabled all of that and of course you know what you saw as as the reason for doing this yeah so i mean i agree um institutions right now the the model is more of a warehousing model um as opposed to a rehabilitation model and mainly that's because of the length of sentences that you get for crime so i think the biggest and the easiest way i can say this is that we're putting people in jail that we're mad at Instead of just putting people in jail that we're afraid of. So there's a difference. So I came across people that should be in jail that I would not want walking the street with my sister or mother or anybody else. Mm-hmm. But then I saw also hundreds and thousands of people that in jail that were just mad at. They just did something stupid. 
And if you take someone who just did something stupid and you give you put them in prison for 10 years, it is very hard. It is very hard for that person to come out and rebuild a successful life after that. It is very difficult. So even small things like from renting, you know, even with us being a venture backed company, I still had to jump through hoops to even rent an apartment, even though I can pay my rent for two, three years up front at one payment. It's still, oh, you have you have to check the box that you're a felon. Regardless of what my family is, I have a drug case. It's, it's oh, well, you know, we can't rent to you. Even having a simple thing as a bank account. Mm-hmm. So you can't open a bank account. Now, I understand if it's a financial crime. I understand if it's bank fraud or, 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 or wire fraud or things like that. I can understand that not wanting to readily give that person a bank account again. I can understand that having an extra process in place for that. But if you take a guy that, that came from a life of streets, and you now he comes out and he tries to rebuild his life. And you don't want to give him a bank account. You don't want him to rent an apartment. You don't want him to do the things that normal pro- producing members of society do. It's very, very easy to go back to the life that he once lived where those things are not necessary. Mm-hmm. So and, and so that's part of that's part of the issue. So that's a broader that's a broader problem. But for me personally, um, what how I focus my time and how I spent my time is I knew that I could not rely on someone to give me a job or someone to give me an opportunity once I was released. I knew that I would be competing against people who also need a job, but don't have to check the box that they're a felon. So I knew that, you know, I had to create something for myself and I had to find a problem. But once again, I knew that my strength was solving a problem. So I knew I had to solve a problem that not only that I felt I can actually make an impact, but I actually felt that I can do and do better than anybody else. So it wasn't just trying to find something that I can do. Like I could do anything. I can sell um, popsicles. I live in Las Vegas. So I can set up a stand and stand on Fremont Street and I can sell popsicles. It's hot. People will buy them. I'll make money. I probably can make a good living. But I want to do something that I can do better than anybody else. And I felt that from my own personal experience going through it and understanding this culture, understanding not only the inmates, what the inmates go through, but also the family members and all the people, my family that went through this same process with me, what they go through. And I felt that we can build a solution not that didn't exist, not that we invented something brand new, but we could be the tall man in a room for the midgets. And that was my goal, to be the tall man in a room for the midgets, build something that, that we could own and be better than anybody else that's doing it. And that's how, that's how we ended up to where we're at. So talk to us about what Pigeonly does exactly, because I, I, you know, I, I, I got to read about it, but I'd love for our listeners to hear. Sure, sure. So basically, Pigeonly, we're a data platform, and we aggregate and collect information on the nation's incarcerated. So the first problem that we solve is that um, all, all incarcerated information, any prison and in, in inmate information is all public record. But like most public records, state records don't talk to each other. So, for example, Florida doesn't talk to Texas. Texas doesn't talk to Michigan. Michigan doesn't talk to California. So if you're if someone's looking for someone that that might be in prison, they have to know what institution or what state to go search in to find that person. And then they have to try to identify what's their address and to be able to interact with them to send them a letter or send them photos and any of that thing. So that's the first part. Uh, that's really the core of our company. So really the core of our business is a database that we built um, that allows that allows us to not only target and reach this demographic because traditionally it's been unreachable, but also allows us to identify and know where people are in real time. Mm-hmm. So um, to give you an idea of a use case, so for example, if we wanted to target everyone who's currently in prison that's going to have a birthday this month, we can do that query in our database and we'll get a list of matches and we'll know, okay, we have 100,000 people that's currently in prison that's going to have a birthday in the month of September. So that's kind of a quick use case. So fast, let me back up. So that's what we built last, interestingly enough. What we built first 
all I was trying to do when I was released was my biggest pain point, my biggest gripe with my family, who I knew loved me and care about me, was you guys never sent me photos. Why was it so hard for you to, me to get you to send me photos? And like once again, it wasn't that they didn't care about me. It wasn't that they didn't love me. It was just that it was very time consuming and difficult. So the process then was you had to go to get the media off your phone at a, either Walgreens or CVS and get it printed, then go to a post office and then mail it. And then you have to figure out what my mailing address is. And most people and most people in prison, they're from low income families, which means the people on the outside are usually their family members are also low income. And the same time that they're at work is the same time the post office is open. So all this to, to go buy a stamp and mail a package off and it's just not going to happen because it's just we're 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 we're. At this point, we're just really trying to maintain this household because usually the breadwinner is the one that's not in that household anymore. Mm-hmm. So so when I came home, that's that's what I wanted to do. So I said, we're going to create. I said, you know, you have smartphones. You have companies like Shutterfly. You have companies like Snapfish. They've been doing this for years. They've been uploading photos and printing them and mailing it for years. Why hasn't anybody built a solution that will work in an institutional environment? And that's what I set out to do. So while I was in a halfway house, I got with my co-founder, Alfonso. And we built the first prototype, what's now known as Photo Pigeon. And the concept is very simple. You can go to the website, you upload the photos that you want. We have a fulfillment company that prints and mails the photos, and the inmate will get the actual four by six in the mail three to five days later. Very, very easy. Very, very simple. And when we got ready to market the product, I knew that the best way to identify who's currently in prison, because that's who. Um, the best the, fam- the best way to identify the families was to start by targeting people who's in prison because doing Google AdWords or Facebook ads and things like that, doing traditional marketing is very hard to identify out of this room full of people who actually has a loved one that's currently in prison that they mm-hmm. want to talk to. So we decided to go the opposite. We decided to start with the inmate and work our way backwards. So I assumed that because criminal records are public information, a public record, I assumed that they were easily accessible, and I learned that I could not do a Google search and find out who was in prison in California. It just didn't exist. So that's how we built the first part of what I just told you was a database to know exactly what prisons were. So basically what we have is algorithms that index public records 24 hours a day, and once it identifies someone that has a criminal case, it'll then check all the databases to see which prison facility this inmate might be. And then once we identify that, we store it, and then we continue to refresh it every day so we always know where he is. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what it does. So what the how that works for PhotoPigeon is what mom has to do now, she just has to put Frederick Hudson when she creates her account and hit search, and then all the Frederick Hudsons pop up. And she's okay, my Frederick is this guy, and she selects my name. At this point, whenever she sends photos, it, it automatically goes to the right address, even when I move. So another problem, even with attorneys have this issue, is that inmates move from place to place a lot. I was in eight different institutions throughout the, the short 51 months that I was there. And I say short because relatively for prison sentence, that's a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it would have been almost impossible. Even my co-founder who knows my first and last name, he knows my date of birth, he knows my social, he knows everything about me. He couldn't even find me to be able to send me a letter. I would get letters all the letters he would send me would go back to him, would go back to him because they was always going to the wrong spot or I would, I would have moved by the time he identified the right address. So we take all the work out of that where we maintain the addresses are in. So all the family member or the user has to do is select the photos they want to send from their Facebook or their Instagram or their device and just hit the send button and that's it. So it's very seamless. It's essentially as easy as sending a text message. Um, we even added the capability so that you can just send text the photo to a number that's associated with your inmate and it's automatically processed. You don't even have to go to the website at all. So 
we just made that process very easy and it paid off. Once again, we didn't invent anything. We didn't do anything that was groundbreaking. We just became the tall man in a room full of midgets. And now we we have, you know, we're shipping, you know, two to three thousand photos a day now on Photo Pigeon. When we started, you know, you know, we was doing, you know, maybe five or ten. <laughs> but so that's kind of let me ask you this. Talk to me about the process of reintegration after coming out. Uh, because, you know, we had a friend here uh, who also served time, and she said that coming out of prison is almost harder than going in. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I'd love to hear your take on that whole experience, especially given that, you know, you started this while you were in there, and then you came out and you're, you know, a venture-backed CEO. With it. I'm very curious about your entire reintegration experience. Yeah, it was. It's it's tough. It's tough. I mean, it's doable. Um, and the way I look at it is if you if you make it through your sentence, um, you know, what guys have to see is they have to know that if I made it through whatever my sentence is, then I'm strong enough to make it through this last phase, which is the reintegration. So it is tough. I mean, it's hard because you're out of touch. So I was gone for almost five years and the world changed so much. I mean, I didn't know how to use a smartphone. I didn't know, you know, a lot of things I didn't know how to use. I didn't even know how to use Facebook, you know, when I was released. So there was things that 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 were new to me that I had to learn. You know, I didn't know how do I how do I, you know, go about getting a car loan or a place to live and all those things. And then I learned that, okay, well, I knew that I couldn't vote because I have a felony background. I didn't know I couldn't rent an apartment if I have a job. I didn't know that. So now how do I deal with that? I didn't know I can't open a bank account. Like, so that's probably what makes it difficult. And if you don't have a strong support network, if you don't have a family members and friends, or if you wasn't able to maintain those connections, it's almost impossible to have successful reintegration. And that's the problem with, with the current setup of institutions is that they make it, it, it creates isolation and isolation is the worst thing that can happen to an inmate. And what happens is, is that majority of guys that are in prison don't have life sentences, which means the majority of guys that are in prison are going to be released at some point in time in the future. What happens when you isolate them and they lose touch with every positive on every connection that they may have, whether it be their mother, whether it be their wife, whether it be a coworker, whether it be a, a college buddy, whoever it may be, if you lose touch with all those people, when you're released, you're just thrown out and you don't even have a clue where to start. So that's why the recidivism rate is what it is. It's because people go back to what they know at that point. All I do know is this, and I'm going to go back to that. Not that it's right, but that's just the reality of what it is. Uh-huh. So when you have the when you have that support network, when you release and you have that family member, you have those people that can support you like I had, then, you know, you have that cushion so that you can find a job. Like, for example, right now we have interns. We have interns that people are currently released and we people that we hire, they're currently released. And, you know, it's difficult to for them to go and look. I mean, I hear the stories, you know, they're happy when they come across us because we're, you know, we're, we're happy to hire people that's been in that situation. And, you know, when they've been looking for a place to, to work that, you know, they get turned down because they have to check that box, regardless of what they actually did. So um, it's just it is it is difficult. I mean, I have guys on my email that I talk to that I mentor, you know, I'm looking for employment, you know, any advice, you know, I've been out for six months, can't find a job, been out for six months. You know, um, you know, my people are getting tired of me at this point, you know, because I'm not contributing. Most of these people, they want to contribute. They want to be productive members. They want to support their family. They want to make the people that care about them proud again. And it's just very difficult. Um when you have this discrimination that happens when you have been incarcerated. Hmm. 
You know, it's really interesting because, you know, the reason I ask this question is when you talk about isolation, I think about that in terms of any traumatic experience and how recovering from any sort of trauma requires a support system, that being one of the most integral parts, regardless of whatever it is. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's very true. And that's kind of how the company that's really the problem that I sought to solve. So what I noticed was that the way the institution environment is set up where you have a vendor that gets in, that wins a contract and this vendor that wins a contract promises the institution X number of dollars for a kickback. And now this one vendor controls all the prices for X product. Let's say let's use the phones, for example. So now if the vendor decides that they want to charge and I have paid fifteen dollars for a 15 minute phone call. If he decides he wants to pay trade that much, I have no choice but to pay that. But I'm not the one that's carrying that burden. My family is. So as they're paying that burden for them, they're paying that cost so that I can keep in touch with them, call them once a week or every two weeks or once a month. You know, eventually, you know, we, we can't we can't talk as much. We just can't. And, and there's no reason for phone calls in this day and age to be 15 a dollar a minute. It just doesn't make sense. I can call Tokyo for less or I can call India for less. So. It, it it's just one of those things where you you're taking someone who's already in a bad situation you're making a situation that much more worse and now you create a you you create an environment where he's isolated from everything that's positive in his life the people regardless of what someone did your mom always is going to love you mm-hmm. so if you isolate that person from the one person that loves him and wants to support them it's going to be a really hard time for him to be released and rebuild his life when he gets out. And that's really what we work to solve. So what we do is that we don't deal with institutions directly at all. We build all of our products to deal directly with decision makers. So, for example, we give um, each inmate up to five free photos a week where anyone can send him five free photos, whether he can pay us now or he can never pay us at all. Um, he can get up to five free photos a week. And then anything past those five free photos, the family member, whoever sent him photos, will pay 50 cents a print. And um, the shipping is free. On our phone product, we do the same thing. So um, we was the first company to give out free minutes. I mean, we've given out over four four million free minutes, saving families over $700,000 in phone time that we've given out for free. And as part of our mission of regardless whether you could afford to pay us or not, you should at least be able to talk 20 minutes a month. That's at least one phone call that you can make home and you don't have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the technology and the cost of things going down, you know, nobody's never really taken an approach to offer this demographic the same things that we're used to. We don't pay for email. We would we balk at the idea of paying for email. Inmates pay five cents a minute to send an email. So it's it's things like that that, you know, I'm not saying that it has to be free, but it doesn't have to cost what they're, what they're charging, I guess is my point. So, for example, even with our phone product that we launched, um, we have the free plan where it's, for, it's a forever free plan. So they can use it forever for a max of 20 minutes a month. And we reset the minutes every month for 20 minutes free. And then if they want to pay, the highest plan that they can choose, there's only two plans. One's five bucks a month. One's 10 bucks a month. The highest they can ever pay is 10 bucks. So we, we, we bill things to be, um, to be part of the solution and to disrupt the current business model of really, you know, for lack of a better term, just extorting people that's already that don't have an option. So if you're the only company and I don't have the option to go to a cheaper provider, then and you can charge me a dollar a minute, you know, what can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really love that there's so much of a sense of mission uh, and purpose behind everything you do. That to me really resonates on so many levels. And I, I knew, you know, when I read about your story, that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Uh, so I, I want to close with one final question. And, and this is how we end all our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. <laughs> that's a great question. 
I think for me, you know, I think I get asked that question uh, different ways often. And it's kind of like when you I have such a peace that I know that I'm doing the right thing at the right time with the right people for the right reasons, that regardless of what happens tomorrow in my business, regardless whether things go south, whether things go good or bad, I know I'm doing the right thing. So I'm going to keep going forward. You know, I was just talking to one of our investors the other night and we was talking about the same subject is, you know, it really always comes up, especially when you start raising capital and you start getting outsiders to invest in your dream or your vision is how do I know you're not going to quit? How do I know that you're really going to see this through? And when you have the confidence that you know that you know that you know that you know that you're doing the right thing at the right time and you're addressing the right problem you're, you're, and you're solving the right thing at the right time, and you're doing it for the right reasons, then it's very hard to get swayed. It's very difficult to to throw in a towel at that point. And that's where that passion you know, burns very hot and it'll drive you, hmm. you know, when, when, you know, other people might throw in the towel. I love it. Uh, well, Frederick, this has been just absolutely fascinating as I, as I kind of knew it would be. And, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights uh, with our listeners here at unmistakable creative. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. My pleasure. It's a pleasure. I had a great time. Yeah. And uh, I hope you. you guys have enjoyed the episode and we'll wrap with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys.
and download your free copy.